of God's Word. And if you'd like to grab your copy of God's Word, we're in Philippians, back into the book of Jordan this Sunday after our children's ministry presentation last Sunday. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2 today, starting verse 12. I have a lengthy section of scripture to read today because we love God's Word here in Israel. Uh, we'll be focusing in the sermon mainly on a portion at the beginning. Uh, but we'll read this entire section of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 30 this morning. But follow along. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to act, according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining, <coughs> so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ, that I may not run or labor for nothing. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so that you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may be cheered when I receive news of that. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone works out for his own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because he, because as a son of his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger. Whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and, it, and not on him only, but also on you, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the way to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him to the Lord with great joy and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help of good man. And thank you, God's blessings. May be And now I'll turn on my mic. There we go. Move this so I don't smack into it. Okay. So last week we had our children's ministry presentation. The week before that was 4th of July week, if I'm not mistaken, and it was basically me and Jerusy here that week, so we had a good time. I'm just kidding. It wasn't just us. There was many who made it out. And this week we're getting back into Philippians. Since for some of us it's been a couple of weeks since we've heard from Philippians, I thought it would be helpful to kind of just recap what we've covered so far. So in Philippians, we've discussed that it's written by a man named Paul. Paul's an apostle. He was writing from, from house arrest, basically. He was writing from house arrest to one of his favorite churches. 
He loved the church at Philippi because they were partners with him in the advance of the gospel. So the first section we read was about his just outpouring of tremendous affection for these Christians. We talked all about love and how love is connected to the gospel because the gospel connects us to God, who is love. And then he goes on from there after just expressing how much he loves these people. He goes on from there to try to set their minds at rest. He knows they're worried about him because he's in prison. They don't know what his circumstances are exactly. And he doesn't want them to worry about him. He wants them to experience fullness of joy. You can't experience joy while you're at the same time just pining away with concern for someone that you care about. So he says, don't worry about me. Not because his circumstances weren't that bad. He says, don't worry about me because my circumstances are working out great. Because I'm chained to, to four different Roman guards through the course of a day. And so I'm getting the chance to advance the gospel among Roman guards. And it's awesome. Like, sure, I'm in prison. Sure, I have no privacy or freedom and all the plans I had made are derailed for at least two years. But it's great because the gospel is advancing. So we talked about purpose and how you can find joy in God through Jesus by understanding clearly your purpose, which is, as a Christian, to advance the gospel. And then we moved on on July 4th weekend, and Paul, in chapter 2, yeah, chapter 2, was encouraging the church to remain united. He said, think, think the same way. Share the same love. Apply your hands to the same purpose. And you'll be united. We talked about how he sort of set this horizon point, And that if everybody would just sort of move toward that, that they would grow closer together naturally. And they would have incredible unity in the church. And we didn't get to talk about it much, but that passage, um, July 4th weekend, also talked a lot about humility. Which is very necessary if you're going to have unity and joy among a church. We have to be humble people. He said things in that passage like, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Consider others as superior to yourself. Apply yourself to other people's interests before your own. Things like that. And then, getting close to our section today, he said, be humble like this, because look at Jesus, our example. Look how humble he was. And he went through that, that wonderful passage there. Actually, I'll read it, because it's, it's one of the best Descriptions of Jesus in, in the Bible, I think. It says, your attitude should be the same. This is in chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or, or hung on to, but made himself nothing from God to fetus. That's what Jesus went from God to being in the pregnant belly of a teenager, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the extreme of humility. This is our example. Christians are to be humble people because Christ was humble. And then he goes on to say, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the very name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. One day everyone will worship Jesus. 
One way or another, one day every knee will bow. Everyone will see that Jesus is the Son of God. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, and that's what brings us to our passage today. I needed to cover that because our passage today starts with the word, therefore. Paul always does this. You can't just pick up in the middle of a book very well because Paul is always saying, therefore, all this other stuff. He's always building on what he just said. So taking all this into account about Jesus, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more in my absence. He uses obedience language here. I'm not quite that confident yet as your pastor to use obedience language to you. I may get there one day. I don't know. We'll see how that would go over. But he says, as you've, you've always done what I said, you've always listened to me. Paul had authority. He says, you've always listened. Even now that I'm in prison, you've always listened. There's something I want you to do. At this point in his letter, he's come to a spot where he wants to tell them something to do. He says, you've always listened to me. There's something else I want you to do. Here in verse 12. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. We're going to camp out and mainly digest these two verses this morning. This is what Paul wanted this Philippian church to apply themselves toward. And the Holy Spirit, I believe, wants us to hear this for ourselves this morning as well. And we're going to see three, three things in these two verses. What Paul wanted them to do, how Paul wanted them to do it, and why Paul wanted them to do it. And in turn, what I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to do, how we are to do it, why we are to do it. So first, the what. Continue to work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. Now, can we all just be honest with each other here? Is that okay? Just, just us? Christianity contains some kind of confusing, seeming paradoxes. And I think this kind of gets toward one that we need to address to understand this. And what I'm talking about here is... The difference between faith and works in terms of salvation. We know that faith saves us. If we've been in church for a while, as as many of us have, we know that it's by grace, through faith, that we are saved. Not of works. It's the gift of God. So there's nothing to boast about. It's the gift of God that we just accept through faith. That's in Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Not from works. And I was thinking about faith. We need to understand faith and works clearly to have this sermon this morning. I was thinking about faith. And I think the kind of faith that we need to have in Jesus is the same kind of faith that you need to have to be able to sit in a hammock. Have any of you, it's summertime, have any of you tried to sit down in a hammock? Especially like a new hammock that you've never tried to sit down in before. Or a hammock that maybe hasn't been used in quite some time. And you sort of try to ease down into it. And you try to get as much seated in it as you possibly can while you can still have your feet on the ground. And you hear all the strings creaking under the burden of the weight. And you you know this hammock is designed to hold a person, but it doesn't seem to be making much effort yet. And at some point, you have to just 
give all your faith into that hammock. At some point, you have to just let your feet off the ground and rest into that hammock and hope that at some point the strings will stop stretching and you won't just be sitting on the ground with, with a uh, trap over yourself. That's kind of the faith that we have to have in Jesus. All of our life is us sort of easing into it. Saving faith is when you finally take your feet up and you're like, okay, I've got this hammock here. I trust it. I'm going to take my feet off the ground. I'm going to put all of my weight in Jesus Christ. That's the kind of faith that we're talking about. Yet we know, we know it's all about faith. Okay, I put faith right here just for visual purposes. We know it's all about faith. Yet we also know that works are important in terms of salvation. We know that Christianity in some sense is about doing good, being good. We know these two ideas. We have some clarity on them, but I think at large in the church, not just our church, but the church at large, there's some confusion about this. How these two things relate. I think we're more comfortable with this, with the works part. I think this is easier for us to think about and to talk about than the faith Jesus part. The the good deeds, the morality, the religion part, I think we're a little bit more comfortable with than the Jesus faith part. And I'll tell you how this works itself out. Um, You may or may not know, I'm actually a pastor now. I know lots of you look up here and see this kid and you're like, what's he doing? He certainly can't be credentialed. And I'm not, totally. I've got my license. I'm not ordained yet. But you still need to listen to me. (laughs) I have my card. And when the denomination mails you your card, your licensure card, um, there's a process you go through. And I think if I'm understanding correctly, it's basically saying that the denomination supports your ministry. They... They've checked you out. You're not heretical. You're not crazy. They mail you your card, and along with your card, you also get a box of business cards. And on the business card, it says Matthew J. Broadway, pastor slash scary religious guy. <laughs> and so I hand this out to everybody that I see. Obviously, that doesn't, it's not true, but it might as well be. Meredith and I have talked about this. Both of us... We don't offer up too quickly that I'm a pastor when we meet people. Because the second you do, they got you figured out and they get scared, typically. People respond to you differently when you're a pastor out in the community. They think you're normal until they say, so what do you do? Like, I'm actually a pastor. And then they're like, oh, okay. And they start to treat you like some kind of spiritual IRS agent. And they get very morally defensive immediately. And so how I know that there's confusion at large about works and faith is because as soon as they get defensive, as soon as they, they, they voluntarily go through a spiritual audit for me, I don't ask them. I'm not sitting there in the barber's chair wherever saying, okay, you know, I'm a pastor now, the cat's out of the bag. Tell me everything about yourself spiritually because I'm judging you right now. I don't say that. But very often people just start offering up kind of a defense for where they are spiritually. And what's the first thing you think they tell me? Well, there's, there's either two things depending on the person. It's either, oh, you're a pastor. That's great. I don't go to church as much as I ought to anymore. <laughs> I used to go. I grew up in such and such church on such and such road. Uh, I don't go as much as I used to, but, but man, I think it's important. You know, God is good. Uh, prayer is important. Bible's neat. It's either that or they immediately say, oh, you're a pastor. Well, that's great. 
I go to such and such church at such and such address. I teach such and such Sunday school, and I contribute to the potlucks, and I get 10%. Whenever they're trying to get comfortable with me to show they're on my team, they stay planted right here. And they talk about good deeds, good works, morality, religious stuff. Rarely does people, do people say, oh, you're a Christian. Man, that's great. I have faith in Jesus Christ too. Rarely have I ever heard that. Another way it works itself out, uh, being a pastor, I have opportunity to talk to people very specifically about the gospel in different circumstances. Uh, one time recently, actually, it was uh, uh, someone who was interested in accepting Christ as their Savior or becoming a Christian. They said, hey, I think I'd like to become a Christian. I was like, man, that's, that is great. That's awesome. What, in your mind, what does that mean to you? What's your understanding of what you mean by this? And they said, well, I think becoming a Christian basically means you stop doing bad stuff and you start doing good stuff. So they're planted right here in the good deeds, good works, religion, morality. Stop not going to church. Start going to church kind of mindset. And I don't think it's that, I don't think always that people have missed the boat totally on the faith in Jesus part. I just don't think they understand how they, they go together. I think lots of times people are missing the boat. And I'll bet some of you have experienced the confusion out there in the real world too. We recently got done with this big Great Commission study. We looked at all the Great Commission texts, uh, except for one which is difficult to, to understand, so I'll skip that one. I'm going to come back to it one day, I promise. I just wasn't ready. But we looked at all the Great Commission texts that say, basically God telling us, you you need to go out there. Create disciples. Make Jesus followers. And so I'm hoping that some of us were kind of charged by that. We're like, I do need to be doing this. And in the workplace or, or at the park, you're looking for opportunities to maybe steer the conversation towards some spiritually beneficial destination. So let's just say you're at the park, you're at Mint Hill Park over there, and you're pushing your kid or your grandkid or your friend or your dad, whoever, on the swing. And you look beside you, and there's somebody else pushing their kid on the swing. And you start chatting, and you're like, yeah, my name's Matt, you come to the park very often, well, that's neat, yeah, my son loves it here, et cetera, et cetera. And you're like, okay, I'm going to steer this thing into something spiritual. Uh, so where do you go to church? Or... Yeah, we, we came out here with my church such and such a time ago. The easiest route into the conversation is something to do with church. How many times have you been in Mint Hill Park swinging your kid or your grandkid or whoever, and you start chatting with the person beside you? This is swinging, by the way. This isn't like, <laughs> in case you're wondering, what are you doing? This is me swinging my child. <laughs> How many times have you looked over and said, or even thought to say, yeah, I come to the park pretty often. My child loves it here. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? <laughs> no. It's kind of uncomfortable to talk about the faith in Jesus thing. So we plant ourselves in the works, morality, religious side. And I don't think it's, it's all bad. I think it is a good way to segue into conversation about spiritual things by talking about church, religion, morality. As long as your goal is to get over towards faith in Jesus because that's what saves. But I think our hesitancy to talk about faith in Jesus has caused some confusion. 
And so I hope to try to clear it up a little bit because we need to understand it to understand how to work out our salvation. If salvation is by faith, how are we to work it out? So I think we're all on the same page. Faith in Jesus alone saves. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. Nothing to boast about. Yet, in James chapter 2, there's a very short verse that says very plainly, basically it expresses that faith without works does not save. Faith without works does not save. So even scripturally, there's... It's kind of hard to reconcile these two ideas. I want to read to you from that passage in James. It's a really important passage. If you'll flip there with me, you might want to follow along. James is further toward the end of the Bible, right after Hebrews, I believe. That would have been embarrassing if that was wrong, or I would have revoked my license right in the day. James chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe in God. You believe there there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. And then if you'll skip down, you'll see the verse I I was referring to earlier. Verse 24. He says, you see that a person is justified by what he does, not by faith alone. What can this mean? It seems kind of confusing. See, I think there's, the Christian walk is, is like a path. And on either side, there, there are two cliffs. If you slip and fall down either cliff, you're going to miss the boat of salvation. You're going to have, you would have been so close. But you, instead of being on the path of Christianity, you slipped off to one side or the other. On the one side, you have what's called legalism, which basically says, okay, I'm going to do this Christianity thing. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to go to church twice a week. I'm going to witness to 3.5 people every day. I'm going to put eight Jesus fishes on my car. I'm going to be a Christian. And it's a self-reliant, willful attempt to act like a Christian. And it's legalism. It leaves the faith in Jesus aspect totally out. And it just embraces the works, religion, morality aspect. And tries its best to just do it. If you slip and fall down that cliff, you will have missed saving Christianity. Now, on the other side of the Christian path, there's another cliff. I would call that one maybe incomplete faith. That one tends to leave out the works, religion, morality part. 
and sort of stand in the faith of Jesus part and say, yeah, I believe. I believe Jesus was the Son of God. I think he's probably, and I think he's the only way to God. I believe Jesus is the only way to God. So there's mental assent to the, the truths of it. But it's not real saving faith because real saving faith is always accompanied by the, by the good deeds. That's what James is saying. The Bible compares you to a tree. You can tell what kind of tree it is by the fruit. Christians naturally produce this stuff because they genuinely have the faith in Jesus. Another aspect of falling off of that side of the cliff is the um, sort of God-reliant passivity that you hear sometimes. I've heard, I've heard a fictional story of a guy who starved to death sitting in a cornfield because he knew God was going to provide some food for him, and he was just going to wait for it. He wouldn't just reach up and pluck one off. It's a, it's a kind of an incomplete view of faith, a misunderstanding of faith. We don't want to fall off either of these cliffs. We want to stay on the path. And I wonder if some of us are joyless because we have stumbled off of the path down one of these two cliffs. Working out your salvation, I think, will help us to stay on this path. So, okay, back to the text. What does it mean? Paul says, continue to work out your salvation. What does it mean if salvation is only by faith to work it out? I thought of a couple of uh, illustrations for this. One of them is toothpaste, and one of them is a Mercedes Benz. And I'll throw both of them at you, hoping that one of them makes some sense. Have better better probability with two illustrations than one. My dad is the best steward of toothpaste I've ever met. There is not one bit of residue of toothpaste left inside the toothpaste tube by the time it hits the trash can. And it's like art to see him get all the toothpaste out of there. He definitely squeezes from the bottom first when it's new. And then as he squeezes, he folds up what he's already squeezed out. So it pushes everything to the top. He gets to the top. It's totally, it's just, it's this tiny little, about that size thing at that point. And then you're at the point to where you're using your fingers and your thumbs on the back of it and you're trying to force as much toothpaste out as you possibly can onto your toothbrush. And that point is almost a two-man job because you need both hands to squeeze it out, but you also somehow need to hold the toothbrush. So you don't know if you need to stick the toothbrush in your mouth and try to squeeze it out like that. And then once he's done everything he can that way, he unfolds it and he gets scissors and he cuts it open and he scrapes toothpaste residue out. I don't know if he still does this. I haven't lived there about... Eight years, but he did it when I left. (laughs) When you get saved, there's certain things that come along with it. And included within that are good works. Included within that is a new heart with new desires. You desire to understand God's word and read it. You desire to turn to God in prayer. You desire to be at church. Also with it are good fruits like the fruit of the spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, Patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. I'm probably leaving some out. All these things are sort of part of the, the package with Christianity. But if you never work it out, like my dad worked out every last inch of toothpaste. See how it ties in now? Every last inch of toothpaste out of that toothpaste thing, then you're missing it all. Let me explain how this kind of has worked itself out for me. Um, 
I, since I've gotten here, I have developed just a, an insatiable thirst for hearing God's word preached. And I guess it's because I'm always the one teaching now and I never sit and hear it. So by God's providence, I was given an iPod shortly before I came here. And I discovered podcasts. Some of you are like, I don't know what he's talking about. It's a little device that you can listen to music mainly, but also things like preaching. And so I immediately subscribed to like a dozen different different guys who I felt like were biblical. And I'm listening to them every time I'm driving somewhere, every time I'm washing the dishes. Anything I do that doesn't require my total focus. Which I know is scary that driving is included in that. That's all else like. <laughs> and I just couldn't get enough. I was just pouring it in all the time. And then eventually I realized it doesn't seem to be making any difference in my life. I hear God's word now almost more than I ever have. Why am I not experiencing any more victory over impatience with my little ones? Or why am I not experiencing any more joy or any more peace? I'm listening to God's word like crazy. And I realize it's because I'm not working it out into my life. I'm not working out my salvation into my daily life. I'm just hoarding toothpaste tubes, basically. But I'm not using it. What I'm about to say is incredibly corny, but I'm hoping it'll help you to remember. What you're getting here is like a tube of toothpaste. I know, that's embarrassing to even say. But it might help you to remember the next time you grab your toothpaste to think, I'm supposed to be working out my salvation today. When you hear a sermon or you read your Bible and you find a promise or a command, that's supposed to be worked out into your life. It's not just something to kind of hear and be like, okay, that was neat, and go on about your business. If you hear promises like, don't worry about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat, I'm going to provide for you just like I do the birds and the flowers of the field. That's a real thing. That promise needs to be worked out into our lives. We need to be working out faith in these promises. If you hear a command like this one, work out your salvation. All the commands in the Bible need to be prayed into reality, into our lives. So I had to set up kind of a, a, a dam in my mind for this river of, tr- of teaching I was receiving. And say, okay, I'm going to turn off the iPod when I, when I hear something that I need to work out into my life. And it's making all the difference. I'll go ahead and give you my other illustration, and then we're going to run short on time. Another way to think about this is in terms of the SLR McLaren Roadster. That's a Mercedes-Benz car. It's a very good copy, but you can kind of see a picture of it there. Let me tell you about this car. Only one car in the world combines Mercedes-Benz style, McLaren Formula One technology, and AMG performance. I have no clue what that means. One push of the button, and it possesses you like nothing else. This is the SLR. It's called the greatest car ever built by one automotive journalist. The SLR represents the absolute pinnacle of what's possible in a sports car. And now with this retractable roof, the SLR McLaren Roadster proclaims it to the skies. Hand-built supercharged V8, perfectly balanced mid-engine, body shell and chassis made entirely of high-strength carbon fiber composites. It has swing-wing doors that swing both forwards and upwards. Formula One-inspired arrow-shaped nose, Twin fin spoiler front, massive side gills that ventilate the engine compartment. 
Electrohydraulic braking system with carbon fiber reinforced lightweight ceramic brakes. A four position air brake that provides increased braking power and stability when braking from high speeds. In case you're going down Arlington Church Road at like 350,000 miles an hour and you need air brakes. The interior oozes the essence of sport. It'll take a while to clean that up when you get home, but. Body contoured carbon fiber sports seats. Sports steering wheel with fingertip shift controls. Starter button that glows red when the key's inserted. <laughs> Matte chrome instrument panel for speed. Tachometer, coolant, temperature, and fuel. Premium leather on dash, console, doors, and armrests, and rear cabin panels. Sounds like a pretty nice car, doesn't it? So let's say you go home today. I finally stop talking, and you get out of here, and, and you go eat your lunch, and you pull into your driveway. And there's the SLR McLaren Mercedes-Benz Roadster with one of those big red ribbons that you see in the car commercials on it. And you pull in and you get out, the keys are in the ignition. You can tell because the ignition button is red. <laughs> and you get in and you call everybody. I have a Mercedes-Benz, what is it, SLR Roadster McLaren thing. And you call everybody. It has all these features. This is terrific. But then your friends start to notice as the weeks pass by, you keep showing up to work in the same old Ford Taurus that you always drive. Nothing against Ford Tauruses. That's primarily what I've always driven. But it's not the SLR and McLaren. Pretty soon they're going to start to worry, wonder if you ever really did get this Mercedes. Because you're never driving it. And you're never experiencing the benefit of all these great things, the air brakes and the leather, because you're never driving it. A Mercedes-Benz that's never driven is a salvation that's never worked out. We have so many promises, so many commands to help guide our lives. If we're not working these things out in our lives, no wonder we're not experiencing the joy that we read in the Bible that we're supposed to. No wonder we're not experiencing the peace and the patience and, and all these things that the Bible promises us. No wonder the world looks at us and they're like, that's just a Ford Taurus. I mean, they, they're talking about air brakes and all this stuff, but I don't see it worked out in their lives. Work out your salvation. Maybe some of us are joyless because we're not working out our salvation. Quickly, how are we supposed to work out our salvation? Before we get to what he says here, which is with fear and trembling. You can only work it out by hearing God's truth and getting in his word. It always comes back to it. You knew I was going to go there. Getting this into your mind and working it out into your life. That's working out your salvation. Making it yours through faith in Jesus. How are we to do it? With fear and trembling, Paul says. Fear and trembling. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you're arrogant and you're prideful and you think you've got this thing under control... You're not going to be able to work out your salvation. Fear and trembling are required. Absolute humility is required. Why? This is going to be my last thing. Why should we work out our salvation? Back in the passage, verse 13. Do all this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
For, in other words, because it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do this. Work out your salvation. Why? Because you can. Do you have any idea how many people are out there in the world trying to work out things like peace and patience and joy into their lives? But they don't have God working in them. And so their toothpaste thing is just empty and they're trying everything they can to get it out and they can't. Because God's not at work in them. But if you are a Christian, through faith in Jesus Christ, God is at work in you to will and to act. That's the only reason you can work out your salvation, because God is in you. And He will do it if you depend on Him. I can't tell you to go home and drive a Mercedes SRL McLaren because you don't have one. But in that illustration, if it had been given to you and you never drove it, how ridiculous would that be? Your friends would be like, dude, drive this car because you can. You have it. We've been given the Holy Spirit when we accept Christ to work out the fruits of the Spirit. Work out your salvation because you can. Because God is at work in you, both to will and to act. In just a moment, we're going to participate in communion. And this is something that the church does. We do quarterly. Some churches actually do it each week. We do it quarterly. This is our remembrance ceremony of the sacrifice Jesus Christ made so that we could have a salvation, that we could have an enablement by God through the Holy Spirit to work out our salvation in our lives. The way we're going to do it this time is I'm going to allow just some time to reflect as we pass out the elements. And then I'm going to read a bit of scripture just before we partake. But while the men come up and while I hand out the bread and then the juice and they pass it out, it's just going to be time for each of you to reflect. To sit there, it's going to be quiet, to, to pray over what we've just learned, to pray over where am I spiritually, have I truly accepted Christ, to repent of sin that the Holy Spirit might bring to your mind, anything that might be disconnecting you from God or from your fellow Christians. To reflect on Jesus, who he is, what he's done. I want to pray with you real quick before we begin this. And and then we'll have this time to reflect. Uh, One thing to note, communion is for believers. For people who have put their faith in that, that hammock, so to speak, of Jesus. You don't have to be a member of our church. To partake, but we do ask that if you if you if you do not have good confidence that you truly are a believer, please just let it pass by. This is uh, something we take very seriously. Um, so let's pray briefly before we we begin communion. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us salvation. Please forgive us for all the different ways and times that we've not been working it out into our actual lives. Lord, I pray that you would bring understanding to the things we've talked about today. Any questions I left unanswered or any confusion I may have created, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, just work in our minds and our hearts to clarify. And as we prepare to partake in communion, I pray that you would search our hearts, reveal anything in there that we need to deal with before we participate in this. And may you be greatly glorified from it all. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.